We're in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, as we go a book at a time, a verse at a time, we're going through the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 is famous because it has Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel. Jesus calls him that, the teacher of Israel. You know, he's the one who's the instructor, kind of the head of the Pharisees there in that sense. He meets with Jesus at night. So maybe some multiple meanings that he means there. I think it was a nighttime meeting, but John is using it to also talk about how he's in the dark a little bit. Uh, he's the fourth richest guy. He's a guy that's in power. He's a keeper of the law, a professional law keeper. We talked about that last week. Uh, he's thinking that he has the kingdom of God. It's in his grasp. He's got it. You know, he's like, he doesn't need much of anything. I've got money. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm in the Pharisees. I'm a teacher of the Pharisees. It's like, you know, what am I lacking pretty much? But Jesus tells him, not only does he not have it, but he can't even see it. And then he says, you know, you can't even enter into it, you know, until you have this spiritual birth. And that confuses him. And he says, all his fleshly work is for naught. What's flesh is flesh. What's spirit, you know, as the one that has to birth you into the, the spiritual kingdom. So he must be born again. And that confuses Nicodemus. We talked about that last week. But Jesus holds him accountable to know the scripture because he's a teacher of Israel. That's why... I was reading that and I was convicted. I'm like, man, that's what he says. Don't let many of you be teachers. It's like you're standing up dividing things. And he holds him accountable to this reference in Ezekiel 36, which talks about removing the heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh, you know, that it's this new spirit that will come upon him. And so it's not a foreign idea. It's just, I guess, hasn't been dwelt on and expanded upon as Jesus is doing here in this text and, and letting this teacher know. And think about that. This is early in Jesus' ministry that he would talk to the teacher of Israel and that he would give them the keys to the kingdom in this way. It's shocking, you know, the events that transpire. But we know that Nicodemus does get saved. Nicodemus, like I said, he thought he had it all. He was Jewish, like I say, the son of Abraham, kept the law. And it was confusing. So let's pick up verse 7. So John 3, verse 7. And Jesus says, Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh. And whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Kind of a mystery. It kind of reveals the mystery through some natural term here. I didn't want to pass over this too quickly. We mentioned it lightly last week. This example that Christ gives here was a great revelation to me at the time when it was revealed to me. You know, when you're reading something, we've all had these. The Bible calls them remez. Is where you're, you're reading a text, and all of a sudden, oh, your eyes get open, and you understand it at a level that you haven't had before. And you can come back to the same text three years later, and then understand that same thing on a deeper level, and it comes again and again and again. You know, just the, the Spirit taking us deeper. First time this came a great revelation to me. I had heard the argument about the wind you know, and faith and, and seeing the effects of the wind. Uh, argument or apologetics would be the fancy word for it. Uh, but in the year 2000, a crazy band uh, came out in contemporary Christian music and kind of shook the industry. And I didn't care for them at first, to be honest. I think I saw them, I was asking Elaine on the way in, we, we saw them on uh, The Tonight Show, and I can't remember if it was Johnny Carson or Jay Leno. Hey, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> they were having to wrestle. I remember thinking like, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> they're, they're doing this song, and I just thought they were kind of weird. But the more you heard the lyrics, and when I didn't always know it was that was who it was, I'm like, oh, that's got some depth to it. And so eventually I ended up and went and bought the cassette. Yeah, I'm that old. And so, so I got, it was an 8-track. Uh, but I went and got the cassette and listened to it, and it was DC Talk Jesus Freak. Yeah, I was probably, by my church standard, I was in trouble for buying such a thing. But uh, I was a little bit of a rebel. <laughs> but it, it's one of them that's a few... One of the few things you can listen to that's like a whole album experience. It's one that you don't just turn on like, oh, I'm just going to listen to this one song. No, you start at one and you let the whole thing play. It's kind of a whole, whole deal. 
And it's one of Elaine and I's favorite uh, that we go to. And it has little snippets here and there, little, little comments like the biggest problem in Christianity today is Christians. You know, they acknowledge Jesus with their, with their lips, but, you know, deny him with their lifestyle. You know, this, an unbelieving world just cannot comprehend or something like that. Pretty close to that. You know, and so it's like these little things that are stuck in there. You know, something about the neighbor complaining about him playing too loud on the drums. And all, and all these little jokes and little things. But, man, there's just a lot of, a lot of depth to it. A lot of insight spiritually that was just kind of... You know, odd from this <laughs> ragtag group of guys. They had a lot of meaningful stuff to the message. And the last song on there we opened with this morning, not Look and Live, but Mind's Eye was playing uh, before. And, um, and this song kind of, I guess, epitomized me. Sums up me, that's a better word. Uh, oh, pitiful me. I visualize everything. You know, it's like I can't listen to a song without having images in my head. I don't read a story without recreating the scenario. I build images in my head if I'm listening to a story, anything. And so this is about that, you know, visualizing something in your mind's eye, you know, trying to, to take the things that we are reading, the concept that you're understanding in the Bible, and then projecting it in your mind's eye and, and having it make that influence to you. And so uh, they sing about that, and they sing about thinking about God, and they sing about seeing him in your mind. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the title. comes around quite often <laughs> in the song. But there's one place in the song where they play a little snippet, and it's a preacher preaching. turns out it's Billy Graham, and he's making a quote about the wind. You're referencing back to this position. He goes, I've never seen the wind. I've seen the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. There's a mystery to it. And they have that snuck in there, and that just really struck me. And then they come around with their lyrics, and, and they kind of expound on that. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't see the Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Spirit. You can't see God. I don't look and see Him face to face, but boy, I sure can't see the effects of Him in lines. It's like watching the wind blow through the trees. They could see it go across the congregation and how God is moving and working in lives, how he's transforming lives, how he'll take someone who's lost and make them found, take someone who's an enemy of, of Christ and turn them into an adopted son or daughter and then watch that transformed life bloom. It's watching the spirit move, like watching the wind that you cannot see, but you can see it affect and trickle across. And, and I've sat in the woods many a time and, and watched the wind blow through and see the tops of the trees and the different currents and watching the clouds. It's like, yeah. I see it all the time. Here's a natural thing that explains the spiritual phenomenon. And this is what he uses with Nicodemus to try to get him to convey. Don't you understand the wind? This is how the spirit moves. It's not something that you see. It takes faith. But when you have eyes to see, you see it. You see it moving. You see it working. You see the wind blowing. It's undeniable. That's why I think testimonies are so important. Testimonies. You cannot argue with a testimony. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was this way. But now I'm a son or daughter of God, and I live for him. My life is transformed, you know, that you have that. God moving amongst our midst, affecting, a moving, working, swinging, swaying, like the breeze through the tree. And I think it's just one of those good things that I've always kept in my pocket, in my apologetic pocket. I can have it to pull it out if someone's talking about, I don't, I don't just have faith in something I can't see. Well, I've got an example that Christ has given me about the wind moving through the trees and, and to be able to use that example. And so when we're speaking to non-believers, you, you can keep that one with you about faith, about trust, about how we can see these things, and that it's not unreasonable. Nicodemus is affected by it. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? He's truly astonished by it here. Jesus is ready with this answer and to go and, and expound upon this text that he doesn't quite understand. And then he, and he takes through talking about being born again and things that are born of water and, and of the Spirit that we talked about last week. And he's like, he's like, man, you're kind of blowing my mind a little bit. And he's, he's the teacher of Israel. Verse 10, And Jesus answered and said unto him, 
Art thou a master in Israel, or this teacher in Israel, and, and know not these things? Verse 11 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know, and we testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. He'd seen Jesus perform the miracles. That's why he's there. If you remember, that's one of the earlier context things. And now he's listening to the message. Jesus is like, I've done these things. I've drawn your attention. Now here's the message. Make sure you have the true message, the right message. And he's interpreting scripture for him and giving him the keys to the kingdom so that he can see and that he might be able to enter into. I'm glad we have this encounter recorded for us. As simple as it is when we think of John, we think of John 3.16. It's kind of terrifying to take on as a pastor. Like, how am I going to have this in a sermon? And how am I going to hear? There's so much depth that is here. And so we're not going to be able to mind all the depths. We'll try to get a little bit. But let's go and we'll read through verse 21. So verse 12 through 21. And he says, if I would have told you earthly things, he's talking about the wind, he's talking about birth, he's talking about having the Bible verse in front of him, you know, Ezekiel 36, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? They're harder to grasp. And no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Jesus moves in the text here from, okay, Nicodemus, you're not understanding the scripture. You're not understanding... When I used a natural thing like the wind to try to convey this, you're astonished by it. Uh, there's a mystery that is working that mystifies him. So Jesus goes down to Sunday school level. Because Jesus knows it's hard. And he's putting these things out here to give us tools and equip us for here and now. Verse 11, verily, verily. Again, that's happened seven times in the book of John. One verily is to get your attention, but this is verily, truly, truly, truly. He's trying to really employ him. Truly, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I would have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He's like, ah, I know you can't ascend up into heaven. You're not going to be able to understand these things. And so it took one coming down from heaven to explain it to us. And he's standing right there in his midst. You know, the Son of God has come down to teach us and to examine and to pull out these truths from the Old Testament. You know, that's why I like the story of the road to Emmaus, where it's like, is our heart not burning within us as he's opened up the scripture? You know, and he pulls all these things out and he's telling them and he's weaving all these things through. So he's come here not only to teach us, but to rescue us from our sin. I'm glad that we have someone who's sent to tell us these things. And then he launches into a Sunday school story, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And this is a strange story, but it is one that even I was going over it with Elaine on the way in, and she's like, oh, I love teaching that one in Sunday school. I'm like, ah, that's kind of, I think that's why Jesus goes to this. You know, it's, a, it's very visual, it's very short. Let's turn to it. It's in Numbers 21. I think most of us are familiar with the story. Numbers 21, we'll start with verse 4. 
It's just six verses is all this story has in the Old Testament. So Numbers 21, verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you wrought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread, which is a miracle from God. You know, they wake up each and every day and there's manna on the ground. God gives them bread. And they're like, we're sick of this light bread. You just brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We want plentiful water. We want Egyptian food. We want all these things. And so they're belly aching. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he shall look upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and he put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when they beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. That's the end of the story. And it's one of them that's kind of odd, like, okay, <laughs> there's this little encounter. And then it moves on, and we really have no resolve or resolution to the story until you get to John chapter 3, an encounter with Nicodemus. It's pretty cool to think about Moses having a whole encounter and the children of Israel going through this rooftop question and answer with Nicodemus here, and for you and I's benefit. And I think the thing that makes this more odd is that if there's a problem that comes into our life as humans, we want to do something. We want to take action against it. You would think that God would say, oh, you know, they're praying, Lord, there's these serpents, could you please remove them? Well, he could have just made them disappear. He could have. He didn't. Because, oh, dig a trench around the camp and light a fire in it. It'll keep those fiery serpents away. We'll fight fire with fire, and we'd all go around saying, that's where the origin of that story comes from, fire with fire. But they didn't do that. He didn't have them form a hunting party and give them all sharp sticks and go out and stab these snakes. You know, I'm sure a lot of that was tried. They didn't go around banging two sticks together, you know, to scare him away, you know, and give him some, some action to be able to do, and go away, snake. Nothing like that. He didn't tell them how to make rubber boots, you know, that are snake-proof that to be able to walk about and, and be safe. No. He didn't say, here's a miracle salve, that if you go and you mix these two elements together, it'll make a salve, you can rub it on the snake bite, and you'll be healed, or here's some kind of ointment. No. He doesn't give them a magic prayer to pray. If you say these magical things, or if you go get dipped in the water, or if you go and do these different things, if you give so much money, nothing like that. He didn't give him anything to do, really. He told Moses to make a copy of the snake out of brass and put it up on a pole. We're like, you know, we're kind of sick of snakes. <laughs> you're going to put another snake up on a pole for us to look at? Then the only thing you had to do was look. You know, when you're at your weakest state, visiting somebody in the hospital bed and they're the weakest, you're at least looking for the eye movement, you know, for them to be able to look or twitch. To look, to lift up your eyes and gaze upon a serpent and you're healed? It's pretty fantastic to think that that is going to be the remedy to this. Especially when you have to be, uh, well, let's just try to all be Jewish here for a minute. Let's put on our rabbi hats. What is a serpent, if you're Jewish, if you're a rabbi? What's he represent? Who's representing? Satan, right? He's representing the serpent that's tempting Eve in the gardens. We have that there. So you're thinking, wait a minute, you're going to put an image of Satan pretty much on a pole? We're going to look to him and live? That just seems weird. Fiery means brass, uh, and that's a brazen serpent. 
Brass was the one metal that could withstand heat that they had, and so it generally represented judgment, like the altars and all the things where they, where they did the sacrifices on were brass. And so as it's hung on a pole, it's Satan judged brass. It's that sin judge that is up there, hanging up there. So there's symbology going on on a deeper level than you and I just normally pick up on. And so the serpent is judged. Why this standalone story, though? Like I said, it's only complete until you get to John 3. Uh, look at uh, John 3, verse 14. It says, For Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus narrows it down just to a few words. Then he compares it to himself. And I don't know about you, but the first time I thought deeply on this verse as a young man, it bothered me. Like it bothered those <laughs> Jewish rabbis. Think about a serpent being up there. I remember thinking, why a snake? I don't like snakes. I don't like snakes. It represents sin. It represents Satan. Why would Jesus be represented in that way? I might be dense, but I'm not that dense. It's like, okay, a snake on a pole. It sure represents a cross, you know, with someone wrapped around it. And it worked because those who looked did live. And as a matter of fact, it's still a sign of healing today. If you go to a medical facility and you think about the medical symbol, right? It's a serpent on a pole, right? Unless... You know, there's another one. If the pole has two snakes on it, that stands for Hermes, and that's the god of commerce. So you might look at your hospital and say, are they more about healing or are they more about money? little surprise for you. Most of them have two snakes. It's all about money. It's not about getting you better. It's about making money from you. But, you know, God's symbol was this, and it had been incorporated by occultic groups and stuff, too. As a matter of fact, the brazen serpent does not go away here. People start worshiping it later, and they have to cut it up and get rid of it. But men ruins everything, <laughs> pretty much. But Jesus says, this is him. Like I said, that bothered me. Jesus on the cross? That's how the Father saw him, as evil. He's not evil. But he saw him represent all the evil of mankind. He saw him represent sin. When, he looked down, when God looked down at the cross and he saw Jesus Christ there bearing our sin upon him, he saw him look like sin. And it looked like a serpent wrapped around a pole. He saw the depravity that should have been us, that he's representing all that. It's all put upon him and he sees him as that symbol should bother us because Jesus looks like you hanging on that cross. Jesus looked like me hanging on that cross. He's paying for all of our sin. He's paying for all the drug addiction. He's paying for all the abuse, all the foul language, all the foul thoughts. He's paying for all the pornography. He's paying for all the sex trafficking. He's paying for everything wicked, all the child abuse, spousal abuse, everything. He is seen as that being a pit of you on him, but it was placed upon him. He didn't become those things in the sense that he became a sinner he didn't. He was the sinless Son of God who bore all these things for us. It was placed upon him. He wasn't evil. He wasn't sinful. He wasn't depraved. He was righteous. Paying the sin debt for you and I. And God was able to pour out his wrath upon him so that you and I could look and live. He was made sin for us, the Bible said. He was made sin for us. Literally, he looked like a serpent on the cross. And the first time when I studied that, that's when it makes your jaw drop and think, what has he done for me? I don't deserve this. Such love. What do we have to do to take advantage of all this? To take advantage of that salvation that is offered upon us? The same thing. Look to the cross and live. Right? In our mind's eye, I can't go to the foot of the cross. I don't have a time machine. I can read the Bible and I can picture the scene. I can see how it all happened. And I have, do it every week when we go through communion. I picture Jesus on the cross dying for my sins. So in my mind's eye, I can picture it, I can visualize it. And I look to him, this 13-year-old boy, and ask him to save me. I came to the front of the church. I was at an altar, old-time altar call. Came forward, my Sunday school teacher met me up there. I've told you the story. He took me to 
Romans, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he said, put your name in there. And I read it for Brian Butler. Called upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. The first Bible verse I ever understood. And I said, please save me. I looked and lived. Humble act of repentance and trusting in him. A miracle happened. It transformed my life. You can see the effects on it. Just like you see the wind in the trees. So an invisible transaction takes place. Takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He puts a new spirit within us. He takes out ours and gives us the new spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence with us. And now he begins to lead us and to guide us and direct us and to convict us of sin and to work and move in our lives. We're changed forever. Like I say, we're a changed life like a tree being pushed by the wind. A miracle of faith. People died for not looking at the brass serpent. One of the things my likes best about that story she says it's the old uh, you know coffee table bible that you got that has the old etching drawings and you look in and the one that she likes for that one is like you have the serpent up on a pole and you have people laying all around it you have some looking and they're living you know and you can tell they have the radiance about their face but in the foreground they got somebody laying there in agony dying from the snake bite loved ones trying to grab their head and turn it and they're refusing to look that's stupid i'm not going to be foolish i'm not going to look at a snake on a pole how's that going to help me Jesus told us that his way would seem like it's foolishness to the world. It's so simple. Such a humble task. It reminds me of the guy who had leprosy. I can't remember his name. But he goes and he's like, you just got dipped seven times in the river. Like, that's embarrassing. He's like, if I told you some hard thing, would you have done it? Well, yeah. So he goes and does it. There's an act of humility here, of humbleness to be able to look and live, to ask Jesus to save you. And that seems foolish to the world. Trusting that some guy died on the cross 2,000 years ago? That that's going to help me here and now? That seems foolish. That I have to repent of my sins and trust in Him? Surely there's something I have to do. What mountain do I have to climb? What ocean do I have to cross? Do I have to walk across the desert on my hands and knees? Do I have to beat myself with sticks? You know, people do these things. That's called religion. Man trying to earn his salvation. Christianity is God loving us enough to reach down to save us, put His Son on the cross to die in our place. Religion is doing something. Christianity, it's done. It's done by Jesus Christ. He did all the work. He did all the saving. Just like your mom birthing you, in that comparison to the birth that Jesus used earlier, Jesus does all the saving. We look and we live. It seems foolish to the world. And how many times we try to point their eyes to it? Just believe. It doesn't it make sense to you. This makes sense that sin has to have a sacrifice, and Jesus became that sacrifice. God cannot let us in unless the sacrifice has been made and have been paid for us. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. You can't earn it. You think of God as being a judge, and I think that's how a lot of people is, because God is a judge, and he will judge us at the end. But a lot of people want to think it's their works that will sway him. Can you imagine going to the court of law today? And you're like, yeah, I'm sorry I ran into that lady and, and, and killed her because I was drunk. But hey, I'm going to donate some money to the police fund, and I want to make sure I give to your favorite club there, Judge. And hey, can I come to your house, and I'll mow your yard for a year? Would that be a good judge who lets him go from that? No, that would be a corrupt judge who got bribed. Our God is not a judge that can be bribed by something that you can sway him with, with money or power and influence or whatever it is you're trying to give to him. No, he's a good, just judge. You cannot sway him. You cannot sway the court. Thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ who came down and died in our place. All we have to do is repent him. The court doesn't care who pays the fine. As long as the fine is paid, Jesus paid your fine for you if you just repent and trust in him. And God made this great act that we all have to have or we can't see the kingdom of God or we can't enter into the kingdom of God unless we are born again. So he made it so easy that all you had to do was look and live or ask Jesus Christ to save you. You know that throughout time or space, anywhere we can 
Repent and trust in Him and trust in Jesus Christ. Faith and trust, belief, it's easy. It's simple. It's global. It's not just Jewish. Verse 15, that whosoever, it's not the first verse I read, but it's the same word, for whosoever, put your name here. Do you have Christ as Savior? If you don't, you can put your name here. Christ did this for whosoever. So if Brian believes in Him, he should not perish but have everlasting life. You can have everlasting life. If you believe in Him, if you believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you realize that He is the saving Son of God, you can't do it yourself, that you need salvation, that you need Jesus Christ to save you. Just ask and believe. Repent and trust. Look and live. That whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says, Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. It's the same old message. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Look and live. Look and be saved. Turn to Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. There is no other. Why is it so easy and why is it so available? God's not willing that any should perish, (laughs) but that all should come to saving knowledge, right? So that leads us to John 3.16. Let's read that together. John 3.16. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Out of 31,102 verses in the Bible, this is probably the most known verse. It's evangelistic. It's the one that we put out there. I mentioned last week about the rainbow hair guy that's usually in the end zone or the sidelines or something at sporting events, and I want to thank Brianne for sending me a story about Tim Tebow. I think most of us might know who he is. I think you probably should. He was a football player for the University of Florida. He was a Heisman Trophy winner with the distinction of being the first and only underclassman to win that award. Uh, he played pro football for the Broncos, among other teams. He played pro baseball and just retired, I think, this month. Just did. I googled and, and searched. There's only like 13 people that have ever played uh, two professional sports. You know, it's hard to make it into a professional sport, let alone to be able to pro play at the professional level. And he did it at two. He is mostly known because he is an outspoken Christian. He didn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't swear. He didn't carouse with women, which means that he was a virgin until the day that he was married. He was clean cut. He praises God every time a microphone is in front of his face. He makes sure he gives God the glory. He is the epitome of what we would think that you would want for a person, at least in America, probably in the 1950s. Not so much now. He's kind of notably known, if you search his name, as one of the most hated sportsmen in the modern era. He's mocked and he's ridiculed relentlessly. He took a knee any time that he would score and he would pray and give God thanks. They coined a term for it, T-bowing, that actually made it into the dictionary. Mocked and made fun of him relentlessly for praising God. Colin Kaepernick is another guy who took a knee to protest against his country, against his nation, to shake his fist and say that we are wrong. And they made him a folk hero. And they hated Tim Tebow. In the playoffs in his college year there at the University of Florida, he became known in the early in the season. He'd put the eye black under his eyes, and he took a silver marker, and he wrote uh, Philippians 4, 13 on there. You know, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And the community went crazy. You know, <laughs> they were selling the stickers. Everybody's talking about it. He said, one guy came up to him and said, my name is Phil. Did you write that for me? Said, no, it's a Bible verse. That's <laughs> why. But he came to the playoff game, and he said he felt led to, to change the verse. He wrote on his eye black with silver marker and, and put John 3.16. At the end of the game, he was given the news that uh, 
Within 24 hours, it had been Googled 94 million times. The most <laughs> trending thing uh, that was going. And his reaction was, who doesn't know what John 3.16 is? <laughs> you, you learned that in Bible school. But 94 million people did that. It made such an impact that people were searching Bible verse that the NCAA banned all messages on iBlack. It's called the Tebow Law. They don't want anybody reading Bible verses. The NFL is famous for drugs, alcohol, DUIs, rapists, spouse abusers, and even murderers. And they didn't want him in the league. 2012, he took the Denver Broncos to the playoffs against the defending uh, Super Bowl champs, the Pittsburgh Steelers. During that game, it wasn't said that he wore any eye black or anything. It was such an upset for him to win. He took a team that was losing. They miraculously won throughout the year and beat uh, the defending Super Bowl champs. They, they lost the next week against uh, the evil Patriots. But uh, <laughs> at the end of that night, they win the game. He said he's coming out of the locker room, going to do the press conference, and the PR guy for the team stops him. And he, the way Tim says, he says, hey, Timmy, <laughs> which I didn't know they called him Timmy, but hey, Timmy, guess what happened? He's like, what? He goes, today was three years to the day when you played that game for the University of Florida. He's like, oh, weird. And he goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, uh, today, you're trending number one on all platforms. John 3.16 is. And Google, Bing, Yahoo, he, all of them. He wasn't even wearing the eye black, but something he did three years ago, people were searching it again. It said 91 million people within 24 hours searched that verse on Google to see what it was. And he's like, wow, that's pretty incredible. He goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, you threw for 316 yards in this game. That's crazy. He goes, yeah, and you averaged 31.6 yards per pass. I was like, that's getting a little goosebumpy. <laughs> He's like, you averaged 3.16 yards per carry. <laughs> He's like, okay, all right. Getting a little bit. He goes, wait a minute, the time of possession was 31.6 seconds, you know, that your team had the ball. He goes, wow, that's pretty crazy. He goes, no, he gets better. He goes, the ratings for the game, 31.6 million people turned in to watch it. Wow, something I did three years ago would have that kind of effect? That gives me encouragement. That people see what you do. They read what you hand them. That the message that you post on Facebook does get used and does looked at and people might consider. And you don't know the life of it. God is moving and working. He was like, I was just doing what I thought I should do. That's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. This verse... John 3.16 is considered the great verse. I mean that literally. Let's break it down. For God, who is God? He is the greatest being. So, this is the extreme reach. The greatest degree. So, what? Loved. This is the greatest term in a relationship. This is the greatest term of affection. To love someone. The world. That's all comprehensive, isn't it? Everyone, the greatest amount that he gave. This is the greatest act to give. He didn't barter. He didn't pay. He didn't render wages. He gave freely his only. If it's your only, especially if it's your son, it's your greatest treasure. The greatest treasure that you have. Begotten son. This is a term to convey the greatest relationship. This is his heir in that sense. The greatest possible gift. Why? Why would he do this? That whosoever, 
the widest company that you can conceive of, all Gentiles, all Jews, the world. This was flabbergasting to the Jewish mind. That whosoever believeth, that's the greatest trust. If you put your belief in someone, in him, again, the greatest object that you could trust in is God. You should not perish. That's the greatest deliverance, right? To live, to not die, to live forever. The greatest deliverance. What a rescue. I could tell you that day when I asked Jesus Christ to save me, talk about a weight off my back. To know now, if I died, I would go to heaven. I had been terrified the previous week up to my salvation. I was going to die, and I was going to go to hell, and I deserved it. But what a weight. I wouldn't perish, but have greatest assurance. Not might have, not possibly have, maybe. No, that you might have the greatest assurance everlasting. That's the greatest promise. Everlasting life. It's the greatest amount of time. Oh, it doesn't start when you die. You know, I think sometimes I find myself in that trap like, oh, I can't wait till I can live everlasting life. It started on the day I got saved. My life doesn't end. I have everlasting life now. I am living for eternity now. And that begins with everything. It does change your outlook. You, know, you don't worry about a time constraint here and now because we know we have forever with him there and then. Everlasting. What a weight it is off my mind. What a comfort it is in the day of trouble. What an assurance it is when you lose a loved one. Man, there's so much that is wrapped around this. It makes it the greatest. On Wednesday, we were studying Psalm 89. One of the main things that God reiterates through that psalm is that I don't lie. If I made you a promise, I keep the promise. I did not lie to my servant David. I will not lie to you. If I said it, it's going to happen. You can take it. God does not lie. This is God's promise spoken by the one who's ascended from heaven or descended down to teach to us, uh, to hear, give it to the teacher of Israel, teaching to you and I here and now in 2021, this great assurance that we can have everlasting what? Life. The greatest blessing. Think when that baby's born. What a blessing. To have life, what a blessing. To come through the surgery, what a blessing. To get over that ailment, whatever it is, it's what a blessing to have life, to live. It's the greatest verse. That's why they say it's the greatest verse. Because it's the greatest thing that we are to preach, right? That we have salvation through none other else than Jesus Christ. Have you looked upon Jesus Christ on the cross? Have you put your faith and trust in him? I would say it's easy, but it takes a great act of humbleness. To bow down and surrender your life to another? But we could be like Peter and say, where else can we go? (laughs) Who else has the way of eternal life? I can tell you, I've searched the major religions. There's none like Jesus. There's none like him. The salvation that he offers, none have any assurance of that. You kill some people, maybe you get eternity. If you go out there and assassinate yourself or kill, kill the infinite... Nobody offers this. It's always something do, 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 do. You got to go to church. You got to join this. You got to be baptized this way. You got to go that. This is done. The great God of the universe sent his son down, who's also deity, made flesh, humbled himself to be born in a dirty little manger, to live up in the poorest town, to come from a poor upbringing, to be hated and despised from all of his brothers and sisters, his community. He was the song of the drunkards, the Psalms tells us. Mocked and made fun of him. Rejected by his own people that he came to save. Yet he lived the life without sin. He turned his face towards Jerusalem when he knew it was time to be crucified. 
But he came to finish the Father's will, to die in our place. Here it is early in the ministry, and he's already saying, I'm going to be lifted up like that serpent on a pole. And it's so that people can look to me and live. And the offer still stands. Here it is, 2021. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, look to him and be saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah said. It means, one, you know that you're a sinner. I think at least one advantage that the snakebite people had is that they knew they'd been bit. I think the problem we have in the United States and probably Trafalgar, Indiana, that most people think they're pretty good people. They don't realize that if you violated God's law, that you're a sinner. If you've ever lied, it makes you a liar. And God says, I can't have no liars in my kingdom. If you've ever lusted after someone that's not your spouse, he goes, I can't allow that. If you've ever stolen anything, regardless of value, I don't have thieves. Have you always remembered the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Have you always put God first? Have you ever covered after something that's not yours? Have you ever disobeyed your parents? It just goes on and on. Have you ever hated someone without cause? The Ten Commandments are there to show us that we are guilty sinners in need of a Savior. To drive us to our knees, to make us humble enough to recognize we need a Savior. And to be desperate enough to look up for help. Because when we are not low, we realize that we cannot save ourselves. You cannot pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. That you need a Savior. It's as easy as looking to live to Jesus Christ. Look unto him and be saved into the earth. Look and live, my brother, live. Look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. It's recorded in his word, hallelujah. When you repent and trust in Christ as Savior, the angels sing. There's celebration in there. The weight of sin is rolled off. You instantly have everlasting life. He takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. He'll change your desires. He'll change your wants. There's no getting, well, I'll clean myself up first and come to him. No, you can't do that. You can't clean yourself up enough. It takes a miraculous work from God to come down and transform you. To take away your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered anymore, to bury it in the deepest part of the sea, never to bring it up and throw it in your face. Our God forgives and forgets. Hallelujah. And that salvation is available for you here and now. If you've not done so, I'd say today should be the day where you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Take advantage of this greatest verse, this greatest sacrifice by our great God who loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, that Christ would die for us. And offer us salvation. And it's not only that you just have salvation. He adopts you into his family. And you become an heir of salvation in the kingdom. He is your father. And you are his son or daughter. And you get to live in his kingdom forever. Talk about access. <laughs> to be able to do all these things. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so I would plead with you. If you don't know him as Savior, repent and trust in him today. And if you do, be that witness. Be that witness. Take some of these tools that Jesus has given us. The wind. Birth. Serpent on a pole. Sacrifices. You never know an opportunity, but if you're searching for an opportunity and you're ready for an opportunity to witness, it's amazing what God brings up before you and the opportunity that you see that you might not have had eyes to see before. But when you're looking, that you see those opportunities and you're able to move and work and take a hold of them. So I challenge you to set yourself ready for that as well.